0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back, everybody. This week, we're going to do a different way with the episode. In the past episodes, we've done a single disaster for each episode. But I have a decent list of disasters going that just don't have enough information to make a full episode out of them. So, I don't really want to just throw in random information that isn't super relevant to the episode, so I don't want to give you, and I don't want to give you guys like a 10 minute episode. So, this one will be a hodgepodge of random disasters that I found interesting that just don't have the historical background necessary to create a full 20, 30, 40 minute episode like I normally do. So, without further ado, let's get into it. The first disaster this week is the Great Whiskey Fire. Yes, a legitimate whiskey fire. Anyone who attended college and made poor choices knows that alcohol can burn. Some of you that attended college and didn't make poor choices also knows alcohol burns. But I personally know alcohol burns because, well, I was a fire major and I very often liked to partake in alcoholic beverages and several of those were set on fire prior to drinking, and then while I was drinking them, pouring them onto a fire that was already going just to see it go poof. Anyway, don't do that at home. So, some of us decided that drinking Bacardi 151 was a good idea. I would be one of those. I don't recommend it. Not super great going down, not super great the next day. It's really not super great coming back up later that night, which it generally does whenever you drink Bacardi 151. Some of us were drinking moonshine in general and thought that was a good idea. The legal moonshine isn't too terrible, but uh, if you have some of that special stuff from Kentucky or West Virginia that you get out of a hay bale in the middle of the woods where you have to call somebody and they're like, yeah, it's the third hay bale on the right after the big oak tree and you go up to the hay bale and you open it and it's a dirty milk jug full of a clear liquid and you're not entirely sure how that happened and you go home and it feels like you're drinking jet fuel, yeah, that stuff will burn too. So, both of those light, obviously. And they will burn fairly well. In fact, most alcohols over about 80 proof can sustain some sort of flame, even if it goes out super quickly if you look at it the wrong way. So, the average proof you can buy whiskey at now hangs out around 80 proof. That's about 40% alcohol by volume. It'll burn, but it'll go out super quick. Because there's just not enough vapor coming off to keep the flame lit. But that 80 proof whiskey that we buy now isn't what was involved in this fire. What this whiskey was was still in the cask. So when whiskey is bottled and sold, it is usually watered down a bit to make it more drinkable to the average person. The average person doesn't want cask strength whiskey. It burns too much, it doesn't taste good. Well, depending on your palate. Some of you will say it tastes good, but generally, you don't want to be drinking casks, strength drink, whiskey all the time. That's basically like drinking fresh moonshine all the time. It's hard to drink. It burns. It doesn't taste super great whole nine yards. So it gets watered down in the bottling process. That's just what happens. It also, it drops the proof down, drops the alcohol by volume down. It also drops how much it burns significantly. What I mentioned earlier was cask-strength whiskey. Cask-strength whiskey is about 70% alcohol by volume, so that's about 140 proof. Basically, if you take the percentage of alcohol by volume and multiply it by two, that's what your proof is. So if you have 30% alcohol by volume, maybe 60 proof. If you've got like 4.8% alcohol by volume, which is some beers and whatnot, then you've got basically nine proof alcohol. That's... how that happens 140 proof alcohol will sustain a good flame significantly good flame for an extended period of time so i purposely didn't mention where the great whiskey fire was because it's so fitting if you asked a random person where the great whiskey fire took place there's only like four places you're going to get answers for one is scotland I know it's called scotch. I don't care. It's still basically whiskey. Kentucky. Again, I know it's bourbon, but come on. We all know they're basically the same. Tennessee and Ireland. Now, my personal guess was Kentucky, but I was wrong. It's Ireland. It took place in Ireland in 1875. To be specific, it happened in Dublin, Ireland on the night of June 18, 1875 on Chamber Street in Dublin. The fire is alleged to have started in the Malone Malt House and Warehouse. The warehouse held approximately 5,000 barrels of whiskey and other random spirits. You know, brandy and the like. That's a lot of fuel load, and a whole lot of flammable liquid. Because they're all in wooden barrels, the building's wooden, the nearby buildings are wooden. It's just a giant fuel load throughout the whole thing. The original alarm was raised at 8 p.m. on the night of June 18th. It's not exactly certain when the fire actually started, but the last time someone had seen the malt house to check on it was about 4:45 p.m. So it happened somewhere between 4:45 and 8 p.m. Don't really know. The fire quickly spread through the warehouse and immediately got into the barrels and into the actual building itself. And when it started burning the barrels, it really put the Dublin Fire Brigade on its heels because that's a lot of flammable liquid and they can't really get in there because It's going to be rows upon rows of barrels that are stacked up, and you've got all those little nooks and crannies that are burning. And they don't have super great fire apparatus to get into those nooks and crannies to be able to get in and pull those barrels apart. They don't have oxygen they can take inside with them. So really, they're stuck on the outside trying to drown this fire from the outside before it spreads down the road or to nearby buildings, or the barrels start to explode and the whiskey goes running out. The building. But, as we all know, in disasters, the worst thing that could happen is generally the thing that does happen. The fire did start popping barrels. And it turned into a normal wall of fire to a 21-year-old frat brother's dream scenario as a fireball of whiskey started pouring down the streets, two feet wide and six inches dip. And not the cinnamon-flavored whiskey. Actual flaming whiskey was running down the streets, about two feet wide and six inches deep. Just a flaming river going down all of the streets nearby. There are two main issues with this development. Number one, the flaming whiskey becomes a vector for the fire to spread further, faster. Number two, this area of Dublin had a lot of outdoor farm-type animals. This tasty flaming river scared the farm animals in attempting to flee every which way, causing even more panic and terror of people trying to get away from the fire that is now running all over the place and the sometimes flaming animals also running all over the place. People were fleeing just everywhere, and this also provides an issue for the Dublin Fire Brigade because they have to get through not only past the burning river of whiskey, they have to get past the crowds of people running away, and the animals running away without getting their equipment broken. There's a famous story from this uh, fire that crops up in basically every source. There was a group of people in a house nearby the Malone Malt house that night who were having a funeral for their dearly departed friend. And they're in the middle of the wake as the fire starts going and. They go out and look, and it's burning the warehouse down the street, and then all of a sudden, the whiskey starts rolling down the street, and then the whiskey catches on fire as it's flowing down the street, and the fire starts to spread towards their house. So they have a decision to make. They can stay with the deceased friend who is inside still and hope that the fire department gets there fast enough and puts the fire out before it gets to their house, Or, they can flee and potentially leave the corpse there, or take the corpse with them. What they decided to do was flee with the corpse, weakened at Bernie's style, away from the fire. Which had to be such a sight to see just a group of people, dressed probably in mourner's clothes, so all black, with a corpse behind them, just dragging this corpse along as they run away from a burning river of whiskey. As the fire dragged on, more and more barrels began to burst, adding more and more fuel to the raging fire. A crowd began to gather around. It was well known throughout the area that whiskey was stored in the warehouse. And what do you think those people were going to do when the barrels started bursting and the fire started spreading? That's right they banded together and stole barrels to carry off to have a good old time themselves on some free whiskey, which is totally exactly what I would be doing. I'd be like, ooh, free whiskey, let me steal one of those barrels and have a good time. But it didn't just stop at stealing barrels. That was only for the most confident of onlookers, because they still had to b- run into a burning warehouse full of exploding whiskey barrels and flammable liquid. So really those were only the ones that had the the most courage or lacked the least amount of common sense, or lacked the most amount of common sense. The rest tried something a bit different. They got pots, pans, cups, bottles, pretty much whatever they could get their hands on to scoop up the liquid flowing down the street. Some people were even alleged to have used their hats or shoes to scoop up the whiskey and drink it. And some... Said to hell with putting it in a container. Let's just drink it straight from the source. Literally lapping it up out of the street as it flowed by literally on fire. At least 24 people were taken to the hospital with alcohol poisoning. So let's recap real quick because we haven't really talked about the fire department. We've talked about it a couple times. We haven't talked about their response. We have a warehouse on fire. We have 5,000 barrels of at least 140 proof whiskey in those barrels. Those barrels have now burst, and the whiskey is rushing down the street, spreading fire to other buildings uncontrolled. The Dublin Fire Brigade is using horse-drawn steam fire engines, and there are only so many fire engines. The Dublin Fire Brigade at this point was only like 10 years old, so it's a really new fire department. So, the first step in fighting this fire is to stop the whiskey. You can't put water on it. It'll just splatter it everywhere and continue to let the fire burn. It literally will just spread the fire around in a circle and it'll spread to more buildings. So the first thing Irish Fire Brigade Captain James Robert Ingram decided to do was use sand to stop the Whiskey River from continuing to flow. And I really have to hand it to him. This was a pretty good idea. With the lack of modern flammable liquid containment measures, there wasn't really a good option for preventing further flow of the whiskey. It was whatever they could find on hand. It's not like they carried anything on their trucks with them. Unfortunately, the sand appears to have not worked. The whiskey began to seep through and over the sand, continuing its flaming disastrous path. So, back to the drawing board. His next idea was... uh, Unusual, creative, uh, gross, but creative, and it was very smart. And I, to be completely honest, there's no way I would have thought of this. Captain Ingram ordered his men to shovel the manure from the horses back into the street. This began to actually soak up the burning whiskey and allow the fire brigade to focus on the houses burning. They were able to successfully extinguish the fire without any deaths or injuries from burns or smoke inhalation. I want to reiterate that. There were no deaths or injuries from burns or smoke inhalation. Those two things. That's not to say there were no casualties. According to the Irish Times, the newspaper at the time, 13 people ended up dying from alcohol poisoning in the days after the fire. Literally, they drank themselves to death on a flaming river of whiskey that ran through the streets. Multiple men were found comatose in the streets without their shoes on, meaning they were drinking the whiskey from their shoes, that would go on to die later. There are several stories of guys being carried to the hospitals and never coming back out because they literally gave themselves alcohol poisoning on the 140-proof whiskey that they were drinking from the dirty Dublin street that, might I remind you, had to have horse manure regularly shoveled out of it because horses were the primary form of transportation. So the road that they're drinking this whiskey down probably was covered in horse manure on a regular basis and probably at that time super gross as far as cause for this fire there isn't really one that's known uh i have some theories on what may have caused this fire i think the most likely theory is someone forgot a lamp when they were checking on the warehouse at around four forty-five. it's unlikely that they needed a lamp but it's a dark warehouse you got to go in and check to make sure everything's all right put the lamp down it's a little too close to hay or something else flammable and all of a sudden there you go the whole warehouse is going the other likely scenario is discarded smoking materials this one seems also highly likely uh, you go in check on the whiskey barrels make sure everything's fine have yourself smoke inside when nobody's looking and toss it out and next thing you know the whole warehouse is gone Also potentially could have been arson, but seems unlikely and there's really no evidence for it. The companies involved weren't really going through any problems at the time, so that seems unlikely as a cause. I think, honestly, I think the most likely cause would be smoking, Um, but it's a cause that's going to be lost history because we really can't go back and look at it and nobody really did any research on it. Back then, to figure out why it happened, fire investigation became a thing majorly, like in the nineteen sixties ish. I people would investigate fires, but not really as like a a career or a defined um, thing. It wasn't it wasn't a thing until the sixties, and it didn't really become a major major part of a career until like the seventies, eighties, and nineties. And in the 2000s is when it really became more of a scientific career choice rather than, and this is going to sound ridiculous, an artistic career choice. Because if you went back in time and you talked to fire investigators in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, they will tell you that they are an artist, they are not a scientist. And there are court cases where, Fire investigators were questioned on their discoveries, and they said that they weren't scientists, they were artists. Which is just utter and complete garbage, but I can't go back and change it now. So, that brings us to the end of the Great Whiskey Fire of Dublin in 1875. Our next disaster goes a little bit back further in time, to the year 1184, and the Erfurt Latrine Disaster. Yes, latrine. Yes, this is going to be gross. Yes, I'm going to make many, many, many poop jokes throughout this whole thing. So prepare yourself. The backstory to this is a bit complicated and hard to parse out. A lot of these people had the same name as their parents and their siblings and they didn't really keep good records of everything, so some of it's kind of deduced from my limited understanding of how to translate German and Latin, so I'm going to do the best I can with the minimal sources I have. Basically, Landgrave Ludwig III, a Landgrave was the equivalency of a duke, had some lands. Archbishop Conrad of Mainz also owned some land. They own land bordering each other. Conrad decided, hey... I'm going to build a castle on a hill, you know, just in case my neighbors get some crazy ideas and want to invade my land and take it from me. That castle was Castle Heiligenberg. I'm really trying to pronounce that correctly. I don't know if I did or not. Part of the problem was this was clearly defense against old Ludwig III. But that's not really the issue here. Ludwig III thought that the hill belonged to him. The hill, in question, has some excellent views of the surrounding countryside and so would be an excellent defensive position should someone get some bright ideas on making their land a little bit bigger than it currently is. Conrad decided it was more his, and he didn't feel like waiting for someone else to build something on the hill, so he built the castle anyway. This fully angered Ludwig Third. And so they started arguing back and, and back and forth 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 and so on and so forth. This got so annoying that King Heinrich VI, English people, English-speaking people call him King Henry VI, decided to hold a meeting in a church to settle their crap. For reference, he was king of Germany at this time, not king of England. He was king of Germany. This all takes place in Germany, which is where Erfurt is. Now, there were a lot of Portman people at this meeting. First, Landgrave Ludwig III and Archbishop Conrad were pretty important in their own right, hence why the literal king of Germany was calling these two dudes to meet together to figure out how they could stop pooping on everyone's parade. One of the other important people at this meeting was Count Heinrich I of Swazburg. I am only bringing him up for two reasons. Number one, he was decidedly not a fan of Ludwig III, as allegedly... During Ludwig's wedding, Heinrich I stole a tapestry from Ludwig, which is, you know, mean to go to someone's wedding and steal their stuff. The other reason is before doing really dumb stuff, or I guess if you're feeling audacious, really brave stuff, he is alleged to have said, if I fail, so may I die in excrement. Unfortunately, I have only seen one source of this quote, and it's a German book that I can't get my hands on to confirm if it's true or not, But honestly, it was too good to be true to not include, and even if it is fake, it's still funny. So, let's get down to the meeting. It's July 25th in Erfurt. All these nobles and their assistants are gathered in this church. Everyone is talking and arguing, trying to get these two guys to stop arguing over a stupid hill, when all of a sudden, there's a loud crack. And you remember as a kid in the backseat of the car when your parents would go over a hill super fast and you get that feeling of weightlessness in your stomach? That's probably what they felt. Or like going on the Tower of Terror at Disney World, except at the bottom of this drop you don't get sprung back up. You hit the floor where the monks of the church would do their business. But you don't get time to recuperate from falling an entire story because there's another loud crack and a second drop. And then a terrible smell and a splash. And the next thing you know, you're trying not to drown in literal liquid poop. I don't know how many of you are familiar with several feet deep wells of a combination of urine and poop, but unfortunately, I am. Living in the Midwest, I get at least one or two fires a year that are pig barns. Every once in a while, it's more than that, and they are a miserable experience because not only do you have to smell usually several hundred rotten, burned pig carcasses, but also the pits underneath themselves. For those unaware, pigs do their business in their barn, and it falls through slats into a giant pit under the barn that's usually 8 to 20 feet deep. They smell about how you would expect. Pigs don't smell good in the first place, especially when there's 600 of them in a single barn that's kept at a super high humidity and super warm. They don't, they don't smell good. But then you combine that they're livering, living over literal liquid poop, and it is enough to knock you on your feet. I went to a pig barn fire once, And I came back, and I literally burned my clothes in the backyard because they smelled so bad, and they would not come out in the wash. It was awful. These pits require ventilator fans to expel the methane bubbles that build up on top of the liquid excrement. Otherwise, there will be a poop explosion. I have done several investigations where those ventilation fans were not working properly, The methane buildup on top of the poop came up as bubbles. The bubbles popped in a fairly regular occurrence. A cloud of methane floated up into the barn, was ignited by something in the barn, usually a heater to keep the pigs warm in the wintertime, and boom. It's very similar to last week's episode where we had the Upper Big Ranch mine disaster that was probably ignited by hot sandstone igniting a methane cloud coming up out of the ground. It's like that, except it comes from pig crap and it torches six to eight hundred pigs and it smells absolutely terrible. Also, burnt poop. Horrible smell. Absolutely horrible smell. Anyway, it is not uncommon for farmers to accidentally slip and fall through the access hatch for the pits and drown in the deep liquid manure. Or, to climb down into the empty pits and suffocate on the methane that is still down in the pit. There aren't great options for collecting pig crap, but I feel like there really has to be a better option than collecting in giant pits underneath the pig barns. They, I it's just, I it's hard, I, I can't explain how terrible it smells. Just truly, truly terrible, especially after it's burnt. <laughs> It didn't burn in this situation. Everybody just kind of fell in. But, God, could you imagine if that methane bubble had released and ignited by one of the candles or whatever burning? It's probably lucky that they were having this in July. Because if this had happened in December when they had to have candles burning or a fire going to keep warm inside, it's likely that there would have been a giant methane bubble that came up and then ignited and then the whole church went, so not only did they just fall through two sto- two floors and then land in liquid poop, they then get burnt in that liquid poop. That just would be the worst way to go. On the scale of absolute worst way to go, I think burning to death, floating in combination of urine and poop is probably number one can't think of a worse way to go than that. Anyway, so, farmers slip and fall in, drown, or they get overcome by the methane and suffocate and die. That's what happened here. All these nobles dropped down into this deep pit and were drowned or suffocated. Or, some of them were very likely injured in the actual fall and died from blunt force trauma in the fall. The cause of this, it's Pretty simple. Too many dudes in one room. The supports were too old and too weak, and they gave way under the heavy load that they probably had never experienced. The second collapse, the floor of the latrine itself above the liquid crap, was a combination of the sudden application of a load that it definitely was not designed for. Because there's no way that they planned to have that many people in the bathroom at one time. I don't think Monk's make giant group trips to the bathroom together, seems unlikely. So, I just kind of want to do a quick run-through of the attendees that we know of and what happened to them. Kind of like the end of a college movie. Our dearest friend, Count Heinrich the I, the one who allegedly said, if I fail, so may I die in excrement, drowned in the excrement. King Heinrich Sixth survived by being in a little alcove that didn't collapse. He literally was allegedly hanging onto a ledge, trying desperately not to fall into the crap. King Heinrich VI would go on to become Emperor Heinrich VI of the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman. When his dad, Emperor Frederick I, drowned, ironic, possibly trying to take a bath, in the Salaf River in 1190 while well, on the Third Crusade. It's debatable on whether Emperor Frederick I drowned. Well, it's not debatable whether he drowned. We know he drowned. We just don't know what he was doing while he drowned. Two sources say he was bathing. One says he was riding his horse across the ri- river and was tossed off of it. One say he was going for a swim and drowned. The most likely source says that he drowned while taking a bath. Emperor Heinrich VI would go on to try and formulate a crusade as well, but would die before it could start, kicking off about two decades of civil war and arguing about who should be emperor. Archbishop Conrad also lived the same way King Heinrich did. He was in the same alcohol with him discussing the debate and survived by hanging on to the edge. Landgrave Ludwig III also survived. He apparently actually fell down in the latrine, but was able to be pulled out. Ludwig III would end up dying about six years later during the Third Crusade. A lot of people died during the Crusades. He didn't actually die in battle or anything. He felt sick during a siege and decided to go home. He, de- he died on that ship near Cyprus. Nearly 60 people in total drowned in the disaster. Most of their names have been lost to history, Most of them were unlikely to be anyone of super importance, were probably aides and stuff like that. And just to fully round it out, the dispute that started this whole thing appears to have not been settled at this meeting, probably because everyone fell into poop. So, let's go on to our next and last disaster of this episode. This one takes place in the United States, down in Louisiana. Lake Penure was a freshwater lake about 10 feet deep, located near Delcambre, Louisiana, in Iberia Parish, down in south central Louisiana. I say it was a lake, it's still a lake, it's just no longer freshwater or 10 feet deep. All that changed on November 20th, 1980. Lake Peñure held a secret. Well, I guess it's not really a secret since it's been there for almost 60 years, but with how things went, you would seem like it was a secret. There was a wide range of salt mines underneath Lake Pinure. It's only 10 feet deep, so it's not unusual for there to be, you know, mining going on underneath the lake. A long, long time ago, there was a saltwater sea over Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. When the sea evaporated, it left all the salt. That salt was then covered by sediment. And because salt is generally less dense than the rest of the soil, it tends to rise up to the surface. Several of these salt domes, that they are basically giant domes of salt, pushed up through the surface and became islands in lakes around Louisiana. The island in Lake Pinure Jefferson Island was one of these. The first mine in the area was started in 1919 by the Jefferson Island Salt Mining Company. Because by god humans are not creative at naming things. That first mine shaft was lost somehow. They so they started a mine shaft in 1919 and they lost it. I'm not sure how you lose a mine shaft, but they succeeded. So they started a second one in 1920, and it wasn't lost like it caved in or flooded, like they just lost it, they don't know where it went so they they started a second one in 1920, that one was successful and they mined there for 37 years because the mine was sold to the Diamond Crystal Salt Company in 1957 the original mining company was mining about a thousand feet below the surface level the majority of the salt in the area was directly below Lake Pinure, literally underneath the level of water. So, when Diamond Crystal Salt Mining Company took over, they started to dig down deeper. If you remember from last week's episode, we talked about different types of mining. The mining used in the Upper Big Branch mine was called Longwall Mining. The other type of mining is called room and Pillar Mining. Just as a recap, for what room and pillar mining is is you basically build that, or you mine out a predetermined size of the room, a certain height, certain width, and then you leave a pillar of material to support the roof, and then you move to the next part. Mine out an area, leave a pillar of a certain dimension, keep hold up the roof, move to the next part. Once you've mined that whole area out, you move down to the next level. So, the original level of mining was at 800 feet. The size of the rooms for that 800 foot level were 100 feet tall and 65 feet wide with the pillars holding the roof up about 75 feet by 75 feet. Then they moved down to the 1,000 foot level which also used the same room size and pillar size and they lined the pillars up for added stability so 100 foot tall room 65 foot wide room with a 75 by 75 pillar directly underneath the pillar on the 800 foot level from the 1000 foot level they went down to 1300 feet and then they went to 1500 feet and then they were getting ready to go down to the 1800 foot level once they were done with the 1500 foot level so by 1980 when the disaster happened They were mining regularly at 1,500 feet below surface level, making rooms that were 75 feet high and 160 feet wide, which is different than what the upper levels were and is a lot of open space. Insert spooky foreshadowing music here. I want to take a moment to point something out. So last episode, we discussed the Upper Big Branch mining disaster, which I've pointed out, in which they hid violations and flaunted safety rules and were generally just terrible about everything safety rules related in order to make money. That is the opposite of what happens here. I want to commend the Diamond Crystal Salt Company. They did evacuation drills every six months. They regularly updated their evacuation plans. They listened when government oversight had suggestions. Problems in the mine with stability and the roof were addressed quickly and effectively. They they actually did the drills. They didn't just say they did the drills. They did the drills. Every employee knew the evacuation codes. They knew where to go in an evacuation. Every single thing was done correctly in this mine. Safety was the highest priority, and they should be praised for that. They did everything correct. This was thoroughly impressive. Finding a mining company that takes safety as seriously as this one did feels like feeling finding a needle in the haystack. It's fantastic. Unfortunately, however, even the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And also, an oil company shows up. If mining companies are the most hated and demonized companies of the 20th century, then oil companies were the second most hated and demonized companies. Enter Texaco. Texaco was drilling exploratory wells searching for oil in and around Lake Pinure. There were two wells being drilled in the area, P-20 and number 35. I don't know why they were named different things, but that's what they were named. That's what we're going with. Number 35 was on land. So we don't care about it, to be honest. Just, we don't care. P-20 was in the lake and was really the one we care about. The drill was provided by Wilson Drilling Corporation, but the maps and permits were all provided by Texaco. Also, all of the oversight was provided by Texaco. So Wilson Drilling Corporation would be doing the actual drilling, but Texaco would be saying when to drill, where to drill, what to drill, what to use to drill the whole nine yards. The drill was supposed to be placed about 50 feet away from where the main salt mine was below Lake Pinure. The drillers were given maps of the locations of the salt mine. Diamond Crystal approved the plan. All of the people operating the drill would have known if they'd hit salt because it would have changed the texture of the mud coming out of the hole. It should have been obvious. Everyone knew that the mine was there. Everyone knew that they needed to put it 50 feet away from the mine. That is not what happened. The drill that was assembled for Lake Pinure was a 14 and 3 quarter inch bit. It was to be drilled to about 2,200 feet in depth before switching to a different drill. It would not get there. At 4.40 a.m. on November 20th, 1980, the driller woke the Texaco drill foreman to let him know that the drill was stuck. It wouldn't turn. It wouldn't pull out. It was jammed. They were at 1,248 feet. Like I said, they wouldn't make their goal. They aren't Harry Stamper, after all. At around 5 a.m., the hook load, so the amount of weight bearing down on the drill into the in the hole, started to exceed the standard 78,000-pound level. It hit a max of 240,000 pounds. When they loosened the drill line, it dropped to 40,000 pounds, but then shot back up over 100,000 pounds. This massively confused everyone on the rig. It shouldn't have been that high. Many of them had never seen drill loads that high. They had absolutely no idea what was happening. They tried everything they could think of, but nothing worked. And then shift change happened at 5.45 a.m. They let the new shift know what was going on, and then they got off the rig. It's the new shift problem now. And that's when it all started to go down the drain. The load on the drill at that time was over 400,000 pounds the driller started to hear weird popping sounds from below the rig, which I have to imagine scares the crap out of you. You're on a rig, in the middle of a lake. Your gigantic drill bit is stuck and will not move. Something is putting 400,000 pounds of weight on that drill, and all of a sudden things are popping? If that doesn't scream lake monster, I don't know what does. And then the rig began to tilt. I have to imagine one guy was like, hey, Are we starting to tilt a bit? And someone else told him he needed to quit drinking on the job before they were like, Oh, we are tilting. This is an issue. One corner of the rig dropped three feet, and that's when they decided it was best to get off. (laughs) At 7.25 a.m., literally only about three hours, not even after the drill bit got stuck, the entire... 150-foot-tall rig disappeared into what was supposed to be about 11 feet of water. So, it is 150 feet in the air, completely disappeared under, allegedly, 11 feet of water. Spoiler alert, it was no longer 11 feet of water. Meanwhile, in the mine underneath the lake, work was just beginning in the mine, There were 48 miners and three visitors from LSU, yes, the school, that entered the mine just before 7 a.m., about 30 minutes before the entire drilling rig disappeared into the allegedly 11-foot deep water. At about 8 a.m., Junius Gaddison, master electrician for the mine, was gathering electrical equipment on the 1,300-foot level to move down to the 1,500-foot level. Most of the miners were already on the 1,500-foot level working. He was minding his own business, doing his own thing, when he hears a weird banging noise. It's a salt mine, and no one is mining on his level. He's just gathering things to go down a level, so there shouldn't be this banging noise, and yet here it is. So he pops his head up and looks down the tunnel. Now I want you to remember, they're in a mine. And I've been in a salt mine. It's completely black, besides headlamps. Completely black. You, you can't see your hand in front of your face. The only light is whatever lights are strung up and his headlamp. He looks down the tunnel, and there he sees a stream of water rushing at him. It's a couple feet deep, and bobbing up and down on the water are several steel drums banging together. And uh, that's generally a bad sign when you're 1,300 feet below the surface of the earth. Gaddison quickly deduced that uh, this is not good, so he did the first thing he thought of. He reached for the power disconnect and flashed it three times to signal to the lower-level miners they needed to evacuate. Every single miner made it out of the mine alive with no injuries, which speaks to how well they planned their evacuations and how much stock Diamond Crystal put into safety. The maintenance foreman, Randy LaSalle, drove on a truck to find four miners that were beyond the lights in the mine that hadn't seen it to pick them up and drive them out himself. That is how prepared they were. They had a plan in place for people that would not see the evacuation call. They did such a good job on this, and so many of them... I mean, there is an entire lake that is now basically... Spoiler alert, draining into the mine. That's why there's a river of water in the mine where there shouldn't be a river of water. There is an entire lake draining into this mine, and they risked their lives to get all of those men out. Six of the miners received awards for heroism from Diamond Crystal Salt Mining Company, which is awesome of a company to do. Granted, you shouldn't have to be heroic in your job when you're a miner, but. That they recognized that they did this safely and effectively and gave them recognition back in the 80s before oversight was really a huge thing? That is commendable, and I am very impressed. Back on the surface, however, Texaco and Diamond Crystal workers met together to try and figure out what had happened. We know what happened, but... They plotted the location of the P-20 drill location on a map of the 1,300-foot level of the mine. In a not-at-all shocking turn of events, the drill had pierced a portion of the mine, and the lake was now draining into the mine. What would have been a 14-3-quarter-inch and hole would quickly expand into a much wider hole as the salt was dissolved into the lake water. While the evacuation of the mine was ongoing, the hole quickly turned into a quarter-mile-wide whirlpool That was actively sucking down a tugboat, several barges, and at least two Texaco oil rigs into the rapidly expanding hole that was draining the entire lake. It would end up pulling down in total 11 barges, literally 65 acres of land, an entire botanical garden, the two oil rigs, the drilling rig, the tugboat, and a whole bunch of trees and houses. No one in the houses were killed and injured as well. They were all able to be evacuated in time. This hole drained the entire lake, the entire thing. It was completely dry. All 3.5 billion gallons of water drained into these mines in less than three hours. And now it's going to get weird. Lake Pinure is connected to the Gulf of Mexico via the Del Cambre Canal. Normally, the canal flows from the lake into the canal into the Gulf of Mexico, so south. That was reversed when the lake started draining. The canal began to flow backwards into the lake. It created a 164-foot-tall waterfall, which was the highest waterfall in the entire state of Louisiana at the time. The waterfall disappeared once the lake refilled and water began flowing the other way again. During this time, there were about 30 shrimp boats in the canal, just hanging out, not expecting the entire lake to drain behind them, and all 30 became beached when the water in the canal dropped to refill the lake. After the lake finished refilling three days later, they all refloated, no problem. At several points during the days following the draining of the lake. Trapped air in the mine rushed out of the hole, shooting a 400-foot geyser into the air. And then, just to add another layer of utterly ridiculous to the situation, gas from one of the wells nearby ignited in the middle of the whirlpool and set it on fire for a while. Because a giant half-mile-wide whirlpool sucking down at least 12 boats and an entire oil rig isn't terrifying enough, we better light it on fire for good measure. In the days after the water stopped flowing and the pressure equalized, nine of the eleven barges floated back to the surface. One fisherman was on the lake near the oil rig at the time of the draining. Leon Vieira was out on his boat, enjoying a nice morning just trying to catch some fish when the wind started roaring and the maelstrom kicked up. Having no idea what was happening, he booked it to the shore as fast as his little boat would carry him and just barely made it out of the water. When he hit the shore, the water disappeared from under his boat, and he was sitting in the mud. He said it was one of the most terrifying experiences of his life. In the days and weeks after the disaster, Diamond Crystal filed a lawsuit against Texaco for damages. Soon after that, Texaco filed a countersuit against Diamond Crystal for loss of equipment because how dare you make me drill in the completely wrong spot and lose my equipment down a mine shaft that I knew was there and I definitely screwed up and drilled into an accident, but it's totally your fault. Diamond Crystal would end up winning a settlement from Texaco for $32 million. The Diamond Crystal employees, who could no longer work because their work was filled with water, also filed a class action lawsuit against Texaco for loss of work but they would lose because it's always the workers who end up screwed the most. Now, the Mine Safety and Health Administration put out an exhaustive report on the events of that day, but they stopped short of determining the actual cause of the disaster because they couldn't inspect the actual mine or the equipment in the area because of the dangers, which is totally reasonable and completely scientific. However, I am not bound to that because this is not an official report, and I'm allowed to recklessly speculate all I want. Except, no, I'm not going to recklessly speculate because we know why this happened. The TexCo engineer used the wrong map. Literally that's it. The map was a universal transverse Mercator coordinate system, but the engineer thought it was a Mercator projection coordinate system. Those sound basically the same, and it's a bit above my pay grade to explain the differences between them. One splits the world into 60 different slices and gives you a coordinate based on that. The other one used localized slices and then gives you a smaller slice, and it's a whole thing. Basically, they use slightly different scaling and measurement systems, and that's why they drilled into the mine instead of 50 feet away from it. So the long-term effects of this is the... Diamond Salt Mining Company closed the mine, obviously, because it's completely filled with water. Uh, Lake Pinure is now about 200 feet deep and salty. It's also now the deepest lake in Louisiana, all thanks to one engineer using the wrong map. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm probably going to bring you some more episodes of multiple disasters in the future. It is gives you, gives me more information to work with, gives me a wider base of disasters to choose from, and a more diverse area of history to talk about. There are several disasters that just don't have the records of what are needed to create a full 50-minute discussion about them, because I'm just not here to fill up random time and make things up and make you guys bored. So, As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Disastrous History. That's Disastrous H-S-T-R-Y, so history without the vowels. You can also follow me on Instagram at Disastrous History, spelled correctly. Uh, We also have a TikTok where I do shorter versions of the episodes and some other disasters that are not covered by episodes that may be in the future, but they're only 60 seconds long, so there's only so much information I can put in them. Um, I also made a coffee, which is... Is a donation service. Um, Unfortunately, running a podcast is not free, so I do have some costs associated with it. There's no um, content hidden behind any paywalls or anything. Everything will always be free. Uh, If you guys want to donate, you absolutely can, but it's totally not necessary if you want to. The link is ko-fi.com slash disastroushistory, all one word all spelled with all the vowels and everything. Thank you guys for listening. Remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. As always, stay safe, and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.